0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: It, it created, established this like realignment or re-questioning of, well, if we're doing this for the people and the people are us as founders, you know, what, how do we want to live? Our team the customers, the community, right? Like all those things, like, okay, well, then we have to realign, like, what is that? What's the, what's in the, their best interest? How do we maximize for that? And so for the team is everything's for the team. It's our number one value. It's our first rule that we live by is we exist for the team. So that means that we have to think about, are they accomplishing their personal dreams, right? People work for most of their lives. How do we make sure that they're still able to do the other things that fulfill them? Not that work doesn't fulfill you. That's a big part of it, but there's other things. So we have two, two, uh, people on our team who are private pilots. They like learned how to be pilots, which is, you know, that's a really complicated accomplishment because you're really dependent on weather and it's, you know, it's expensive and you have to have flexibility of time because, oh, it's a beautiful day. Let's go. Uh, you know, I'm going to schedule it tomorrow and it's too windy. I can't go out, you know, and had they not worked for a while, but I don't know that they would have had another space where they were able to accomplish that over a couple of years, you know, because. We were able to say, like, you know, Ilya would say, hey, it's a beautiful day tomorrow. I'm going to take or it's a beautiful day today. I'm going to take three hours and I'll pick it up later. And it's like, sure, go for it. You know, and that's success to me is like if Yoba can enable us to have lives that are meaningful and fulfilled and what's the entire reason for existence.
0: Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
2: Bombus. Big comfort for
1: everyone. Go to bombuscom slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on
1: iPhone and Stripe,
0: your business is always at your fingertips. Natalie, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your story by way of uh, somebody on your team who wrote in to tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing uh, and a lot of the work that you're doing around the way that we work, which I happen to think is fundamentally broken. Uh, And when I heard a little bit about what you've accomplished, despite your sort of unusual way of working, I thought, okay, this is a conversation I want to have because it's something I'm very interested in. So I thought we'd start with a really fitting question, given what we're going to talk about. And that is, what was the very first job that you ever had? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: So my mom was an entrepreneur or is an entrepreneur. Um, and she ran a mortgage company. And my very first job was answering the phones in her mortgage company and taking mortgage applications. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, you know, watching my mom really shine outside of her role as a mother, you know, as a woman, I was just watching her be really in control and really, committed to solving problems definitely created that um, what I call audacity to think that uh, I can do it too. (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, I just grew up like she was, she worked really hard and uh, she worked very smart, but also kind of really focused on being an important part of the business. She had a partner and, you know, just made sure that as a woman and also somebody who'd never done this before, really created value. And that has been a key driver for me. And I think a very common thread when I spend time reflecting on who I am as a leader, like I think I've learned a lot of that from my mom and watching her work. Mm. Uh,
0: That audacity to think that you could do something remarkable. I, I wonder if somebody wasn't raised with that or in the environment that you were in, how do they cultivate it? And why do you think people lose that with age?
1: I guess, uh, you know, I think maybe you get jaded to some degree. I, I, so I run the business with my husband, Chris, and he did not grow up in a family of entrepreneurs, but saw entrepreneurs around him. Uh, and he has that same audacity, right? So we'll talk about that a lot. And I think it's, there's some naivete maybe, you know, or something like where you haven't gotten to that point where you're where you're jaded or start kind of seeing the world as less, Perfect or less l- with less opportunity than you have when you're young, right? So I, I mean, I think for us, like there was something about the definitely an ego that said like, hey, I could do this, you know, like why not? You know, well, if, if well, I'm in control of my ability and my accomplishments, and I can do whatever I want, and let's make it happen. I mean, we were definitely young and had a lot less to lose, <laughs> you know. It's like what's the worst that happens? We have to get jobs. So you don't know what deal. But I think mm-hmm. you know, I, I imagine as you get older. I mean, I think about a lot. The, as you get older, but recently, because we're all older and, and I work with people that have worked with me for a long time. I mean, we have folks on the team that last 14 years, 10 years. And, you know, we all started off young, not married, got married, had kids, you know, did the whole thing. And I can't imagine starting a brand new business now with two kids and a mortgage and all these things because there's just so much more risk, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we talk a lot about that in our industry specifically with like how fun financing is done for new businesses. And there's this really interesting place that I'm excited about is like, how do we fund sustainable businesses for people who aren't 19 years old, you know, with more or less a safety net in their families and other places that can just kind of create, how do we help those people who are equally as smart and equally as capable to create later on in their careers?
0: Yeah. So, how do you balance that audacity and that, that confidence with the humility that's needed to learn? Because I think that one of the things you'll hear over and over uh, when you hear about young people, particularly young people fresh on the job market, is that there, you know, sometimes there's a sense of entitlement or the sense that, oh, I should be able to do amazing work right out of the gate. And, you know, my friend Ryan Holiday has written about this, and ego is the enemy. Uh, and so I wonder how you balance those th- two things or how you have in your own life. I
1: think there's probably some some difference between or some variance of ego, right? I never questioned my ability to be in control of my what I can contribute, right? I've never felt like there was a limit to my contribution, if that makes sense. You know, like I knew that mm. my back against the wall, I will fight my way out of it. I question all the time my actual skill set. You know, like I I'm constantly like, am I a good enough leader, am I a good enough spouse? Am I a good enough mother? Am I good good enough at doing interviews? Am I you know, and I'm constantly learning and figuring that out. And I have very little ego around my being like extremely good at these individual skill sets that make up my role as CEO, right? My old role as a spouse. But personally I know that like what I'm not good at, I will figure out a way to get good at. So I think there's kind of like that balance between realizing, you know, nobody else is going to give it to me. So if it's something I care about and I really need to do, I'll figure out how to do it. I might not be the best at it and I'll have to keep working on it. But, you know, I don't, I'm pretty humble when it comes to the things that like on my day to day, you know, it's, it's that audacity to say, Hey, I'm capable enough and should be the person that is responsible for 30 people's livelihoods and not 30 really, right? 30 maybe 90 120 depending on the families that they support so that i think there's 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 definitely a balance although i will say there's this thing that, that i've been trying to practice and maybe that's also because i'm a woman but i try not to do the gender stuff but i've been trying to compliment myself on the things that i am good at because that's actually okay you know and there's things where like i'll i'll do something and i'll, I'll present something to the team and i'll be like you know what i did good that was good I felt good about that because that's also how I learned where my strengths and weaknesses are. If I can congratulate myself on the areas where I did well, it's also going to help me see better. Well, if that one was good, this one wasn't as good. I think I grew up Mm -hmm. very much focused on all the ways I I could improve and never stopping to celebrate or to congratulate myself as a person on my own successes.
0: Mm. How do you think about, uh, advising your kids on what they should do with their lives. I don't know how old they are, so maybe this is a premature question, but I, I wonder always uh, when people are entrepreneurs or have unusual careers, how they think about parenting.
1: Oh, man. So I have a nine-year-old and a four-year-old, and we think about it a lot. And I think, you know, I, I went to college. Chris did not go to college. I have very strong opinions on higher ed. I, and I think our goal and what we've kind of committed to is helping them think and creating environments where they're taught how to think. And then their careers are going to be their decision as long as they, they work hard, you know, and that can be, if they want to be a doctor, great. If they want to be entrepreneurs, awesome. You know, I I definitely go back and forth. Entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. And sometimes I'm like, man, if I was a doctor, I'd be in demand all the time, have a good salary. You know, it's like I'm a a product of Jewish immigrants. And so there's definitely that like doctor or lawyer thing hanging over my head for a long time. And um, I understand as a parent, the the stability piece of that and, and wanting that for your children. But, you know, they're going to grow up with two parents as entrepreneurs and we bring the business home. We talk about work and they know everything about our job. And, you know, it's probably there's going to be one of them that's going to be an entrepreneur, right? Or want to do something different. But they're, it, we're very committed to them, to giving them the space that they need to, to understand themselves and to find what they want to do. But they have to work hard. So, you know, we work hard and and we want to instill that hard work into them. But if they go to college, they don't go to college. I don't really care. Truthfully, I'm not a big fan of college, so I would be okay if they didn't go to college. But, you know, unless they want to be a doctor and you obviously need to know how to do those things. Uh, But uh, I think just as long as we can help them think, thinking is where I, you know, that's going to be the difference between computers and not computers, right is the ability to think and empathize and so hopefully, if we can raise two little girls who are turned into you know women who are thoughtful and have the capacity to deeply think about problems and solve them, then i don't care what they do
0: uh-huh. uh, you know it's funny you say that because uh I realized that our tools are becoming much more powerful, and our ability to go from idea to execution is becoming much more rapid, so suddenly it's no longer. Uh, just the ability to execute. In fact, your ability to come up with ideas and how you could use different tools matters just as much as the ability to actually execute the idea.
1: Absolutely. And also, why? Right. I mean, in my yeah. industry, it's like, my goodness, it's like we're building things that don't need to exist. <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, yeah. there's, there's the why piece as well. And our kids are going to have to think about that more than we are. So, yeah. You know, I'd like to hope that they're thoughtful in the what I'm creating and why I'm creating it, how I'm creating it, who's it impacting right? What's the human impact of all those things as well.
0: Yeah, well, the reason this was fresh in my mind is because I'd been you know, playing around with different tools. We just signed up with an unlimited graphic design service, and they had all these capabilities for things that I've been wanting to do for so long. And I started to look at it, and I thought, wow, what a waste of this resource it would be to just you know, have stupid Instagram design when they have all these other capabilities, which is what a lot of people would use that for, which is, is mind-boggling to me. That's why it made me think that the question that you ask, how am I going to use this, is just as important as knowing how you're going to use it. For sure. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wonder, uh, and I always wonder this with immigrants, uh, what aspects, um, other than that sort of become a doctor, lawyer, engineer, uh, narrative, which, you know, you probably know because I'm Indian, I also inherited, uh, what are the other aspects of, of, you know, uh, growing up as, as, uh, you know, the daughter of Jewish immigrants, what part of culture have you retained and what part have you let go as you've gotten older, uh, and, you know, kind of come in and started building your own life
1: so we came to the states as jewish refugees in 1989 from russia and so part of that uh russian jewish culture was you know it was so important for my parents to preserve because of what they went through and how much that caused them to leave right so you know i in russia being jewish is almost like a nationality So there's, you know, in your passport, it would say Jew, you know, there was all these rules written or unwritten about how you could not be, my grandfather was an inventor, an engineer, an inventor, and like his name could never be on any patents because he was a Jew, you know, so his boss would put his name on the patent, you know, so it was like all those things. So I think that history, that background, when we came to the States, my mom was adamant on one that we had to speak Russian. And she's one of, I grew up with a lot of Russian friends and what my mom did that was so unique was she looked at it and said, you will have no choice but to learn English. I'm not speaking English in the house to you. And she's, we were not allowed to speak English at home. We only spoke Russian because she's, she had no concerns that I was going to pick up English extremely quickly because I was going to go to school in America and, you know, have American friends and all those things. It was going to take me three minutes. But she's like, you'll lose Russian in a heartbeat. And so that was like one thing that was critically important to her was to keep Russian in the home. And, you know, we belong to a synagogue and, and really grew up, you know, we're not very, very traditional, uh, but we grew up understanding where they came from, you know, understanding that you don't have to go to some degree. People don't think of persecution against, you know, and this is going to get super deep, you know, think of persecution against Jews as like a thing of the past, you know, the Holocaust and all those things. And we're talking, you know, 25 years ago and to some degree today, still, you know, in a country like Russia, it was not acceptable to be Jewish. You know, you were considered second class. So I think, you know, and that brings the, you know, again, your immigrant story, right? My parents worked Crazy to when they came here. My dad was a doctor in Russia and my mom was a classical musician and obviously couldn't do either of those two things and feed your family. So, they everything that they built was I watched them build that. My, I have a younger sister who's five years younger than me and she didn't really watch that as much as I did because I was older and experienced that. And you just watch these people who just I mean, the strength, they're so young. My mom was 26 or 27 when she came here, you know, with a kid left Russia to say goodbye, you know, and just watching the strength of those people pick up and just, you know, whatever it takes, right? Maybe there's that audacity against <laughs> whatever it takes back against the wall and we will make it happen. And they ended up, you know, running multiple businesses and having a big exit and all these things and just, you know, your typical m- American dream. And, you know, that has to have an impact on how I, you know, live my life and, and run a business as well.
0: Yeah. What do you think that, People who uh, only hear about refugees uh, in stories like yours or watch uh, the news, what misperceptions do you think we have about refugees? Like, what are we not seeing about this?
1: I think there's a. I can't speak for anybody other than my family, but you know, and we we lived, we came as a as a group. There was a large kind of exodus of Jews right before the wall fell, like the late '80s, early '90s, uh, where. Russia was kind of in this place where they're like, just get out, you know, and, uh, I've seen the work ethic of people who go through that process. I mean, they don't come to this country for anything other than the desire to just make it better, make their lives better. Right. And the, I don't know patriots or I don't know people as patriotic as like my parents, for example, I don't know that I would you. Know, you and I would agree with all their politics, and that's a whole different story. But their love, like since the day we came to America, Thanksgiving is our most important holiday, and the very first toast my grandfather has always given is thank you to this country. Like it is such a deeply ingrained gratefulness for the ability to leave something like Russia, come here, build whatever you want from scratch. You know, and and there's a. Uh, I just don't have a way to believe that there's people who go through that process. And it is a process. I mean, ours was different. We, we had to, uh, there was kind of immigration where we lived in, in different countries we lived in Austria and in Italy for a while until it kind of like it rolled over and you kind of got your, your permission to come in and paid. There's all this stuff. It was crazy. And you know, you don't go through all that to mooch off the system or to uh, you know, to, to not be, as patriotic as the person who was born here. It's just, it's just not there, right? You don't go through, that doesn't make sense. Um, And then at the same time, I grew up with a lot of friends who came from Russia afterwards, you know, after you had this, you know, kind of four or five years where people left in in big groups and and did the whole refugee immigration. And then later on in the mid, mid nineties, late nineties, people were able to come much more freely. You know, I got on a plane in Russia landed in New York city, right? Like that was much, much different. And I, and this is anecdotal and these are my experiences, but I, there's a lot of those people who were not as uh, committed to this country or as grateful, right? Because, and and I don't mean to say that they are bad people. I just mean to say that the people who went through it, who went through so much hardship to get there, it seems outrageous that we would look at them and say that they're somehow trying to gain the system or somehow, you know, not worthy or anything like that. I just, I can't see it.
0: (laughs) Uh, you mentioned that your mother was a, a classical musician. I wonder if there are any lessons that came from her experience as a musician that she parted on. And did you play any instruments yourself?
1: I played piano until it was so terrible with my mom <laughs> that I quit and begged my mom's best friend to tell her I had to quit. My mom's not. My mom uh, is a perfectionist and she's an extremely good mother. And I wish I was half the mom that she was, but she... Got me a teacher and expected me to play really well, but I had to practice all the time. And you know, you're a kid, and you're like, I don't want to practice all the time. And I don't think I had the passion for it. But my mom, that that training, uh, also comes with you know an incredible love for theater and the arts. And you know, when I was a kid, we went to everything. We had a subscription to everything. even when we didn't have. We bought the cheapest tickets we could find. We didn't have the money, but we went to all the orchestra performances, to the ballet. We would go to the opera. To kids' theaters, we would drive to New York. Well, there was a point I remember as a kid. We live in Philadelphia, and we would. My mom got us a subscription to a kids' theater in New York City, and we would go up there for an hour and a half performance, and it's two hour drive both directions. And she just had this, you know, belief that the arts and and music and theater are so critical to your ability to evolve as a person. And I was just having that conversation with my husband Chris over at dinner the other night because. I'm not as good at that. You know, one, it was never my passion or she was a musical, classical musician. She studied music, you know, so that's obviously very front and set in her mind. We don't take our kids nearly to as much as my mom did. So my mom actually took on that role as grandma. She's always buying them subscriptions to this theater and that theater. But we had this long conversation with Chris trying to say, you know, like, is that old fashioned or are, is there true value to having your, your perception changed by things like music and art and theater? Uh, and I, I'd like to think that it does have a, a pretty profound impact. One, you know, you're, you're listening to, to stories and ideas and, pers- I mean, to some degree, these operas are philosophical and very thoughtful and, you know, and you have this exposure to different things, but music and art is such a human, uh, such a, such an addition to the human condition. Right. So I, I, I think she added all of that to my life and I. I take cues from that and I like to be as thoughtful and intentional about it as she is, but I'm so grateful to have her as a grandma because she can take some of that on herself and she's always taking them places. Mm.
0: So tell me what happened between this first job, uh, answering the phones, uh, this business that your mom ran to where you're at now, what's been the trajectory and what have been the significant inflection points?
1: So I, uh, I met my husband, Chris, uh, in my senior year of, uh, high school, believe it or not. Uh, and he had started the business. He had started wild bit when he was like 19, 20 years old. So it was about three years into his starting the business and we started dating and I graduated from high school went to college and college was near where he lived in the city. And I just by nature of that's just what you do would start helping him out with the business. We were doing client services work. So I would do QuickBooks or answer you know, emails or help him think through RFPs and things like that. And it was just, you know, I was in school full-time. I was actually in school for risk management and insurance, very sexy. Um, And, you know, I, I didn't really have like a path. And I think that's one thing I learned from my parents. Like, I can't tell you that my mom or my dad ran businesses that they were like crazy passionate about. Like, I don't, I'm not, and I don't really have like, I didn't wake up one morning and say, I want to do software development. I I've always known I wanted to work with people and help kind of challenge things. And that's how my parents were, right? Like that, that's the, my mom didn't love the mortgages so much. She wanted to run a mortgage business. So anyway, so I got it. I was in school for risk management and insurance because at the time in my university, where I was going to school at Temple University, that was one of the best degrees you could get. So I looked at it and said, what's the shortest time frame to the most amount of money? <laughs> and that was the job I got, you know? And so we worked together a little bit. I kind of worked on the side. I was waitressing and hostessing and uh, we were living off of that money so that Chris could focus all the other money that the business made back into the business. So we lived a very frugal kind of fun life. We would Uh, do trades with some of the local restaurants because we did work for them and we'd eat in all these nice restaurants and didn't have to pay for it. So we traded it in, in work. And then I graduated from college and I, Chris and I agreed that I, I, we got married and I graduated and said, well, I got to go do this thing that I spent all this money and effort doing. And I got a great job. It's $48,000 a year, you know, for a 22 year old full benefits for both of us, a $10,000 sign on bonus, 10% bonus. I mean, it was all this stuff. And i was like, this is amazing. So we're like, we're going to live off of this $48,000 and continue to invest the money in the business. And I lasted nine months. Uh, and you know, we fought more in those nine months than we had ever fought. And part of that is because I was spending all this time in you know, corporate America and I was really jaded in corporate America, you know, I, I got in there and I'm giving a hundred percent and everybody's giving 20%. So of course they're all like, Oh my God, you're amazing. And I'm like, okay, but why isn't anybody else working? <laughs> um, and so we kind of like, I did that for nine months and we agreed like that was it from, I had to come back into the business and we were just going to run a business together for as long as we could afford to do it. And we started, uh, you know, I came back and it was 2008, I guess, late 2008. And I, uh, I came in kind of not knowing what my job was going to be. We didn't really have titles. I mean, we didn't have titles until about three years ago. And we just kind of came in and said, we're going to work together. We're going to spend whatever those 60, 70 hours were. Instead of giving it to somebody else, I'm going to give it to us. You know, And that's what we did. And it was really risky because that 48,000 was great. So what we actually ended up doing was, I forgot about that. We went to our bank, our credit union and said, could you lend us $48,000 so that in case something happens, we can still continually live off of the money that, you know, that we used to have. The bank gave us 30, they would give us 48. <laughs> great. That's how much we were worth. Um, and they gave us 30 grand and we lived off of that for a little bit and, you know, and just kind of kept growing the business from there. Uh.
3: If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. from sort of this this idea of you know 70 hours and you know really working hard how do you arrive at the conclusion of sort of this perspective uh, on work uh, and the idea you know I think really you're echoing a sentiment and chances are you've probably read this book already uh, that the basecamp founders just wrote called it doesn't have to be crazy at work uh, you know it, because it's such a, a a contrast from hey i'm going to put in 70 hours to you know changing the way that you work and i, I wonder you know one what what was the cause of that like why did you end up having this perspective shift?
1: So a bunch, you know, a bunch of years ago, we made the decision to say officially that we only work 40 hours a week in hiring and in the company. And that was this like big thing. People were like, oh my God, you only work 40 hours a week. And apparently that's unusual. And we started to kind of continue to, to investigate. We've always been obsessed with the ideas around focus and getting really good work done and wasting time. And it's just, it's always been kind of like an obsession for Chris and I in, in various forms, he making sure that nobody's idle and me thinking through like, as a human being, what do we want to accomplish? And it can't just be work, you know, and just finding those intersections. And then we, uh, I read a book called deep work by Cal Newport. Uh, it's one of my favorites. Everybody on the team gets it. And Cal talks about, you know, what is your brain's capacity for really good, meaningful work? You know, deep work, the stuff we get paid for, your unique ability, call it whatever you want, right? And it's four hours. The studies show that it's four hours a day. So, you know, and that was like the last thing I needed to hear to say, we're done. Let's find a better way to work. We should not be. Oh, I guess right before that, we were also, we changed to have like what I called flexible working hours, which said like, if it's three o'clock in the afternoon, please don't just sit there staring at your computer, waiting for it to turn five. Like that's not, you're you're not doing me any good and you're not doing yourself any good as a human. So we saw that, you know, Red Cal's book got to the four hours and I, you know, we kind of looked at it and said, let's experiment. Nobody said there's no rule that I had, there's no contract I signed when I became an entrepreneur is that I have to make my my employees work 40 hours a week. And we started this 32 hour work week experiment. Uh, It's been going on a year and a half over a year and a half. And it's been working really well for us. We don't, we work four days, 32 hours and we spend three days clearing our heads, you know, getting, getting other things done and the quality of work has increased. Our output has been better Uh, our team is happier. I'm happier. You know? So I think uh, I honest, honestly, like uh, so much of that comes from this audacity to think differently. I don't, I don't, I hate to continue to use that word for me. It's like this, this, why are we doing it this way? Who said that this is the way to do it? And one of the beauties of being, we're bootstrapped, we're profitable. I have nobody to answer to, but ourselves is like, well, we can grow as fast as we want to grow and we don't have to grow any faster. And so it's like, well, you know, people would say like, well, how do you know you're going to get enough done? I'm like, well, what's enough? And not my enough. And your like, let's just make sure enough can be done in four days. And with the caveat, we have to grow it to be sustainable and all these, they profitable. I mean, all those things that have to happen but we don't have to shoot for what our competitors are doing. I don't have to be a $300 million business, nor do I really want to, you know, so I think understanding that and being, being confident in that and really fighting for our team. There was a bunch of years ago where we hit a plateau in our one product being stock, and it was probably our lowest point in the history of the business. And, you know, we got out of it by really questioning why we're in business. Like Bringing it back to those roots, like why do we run a business? And we realize that we do it for the people. We don't do it for money. I mean, money's good, and I like it, but you know that's not why we do it. And we don't do it just—we don't do it for ego. We're not looking to run a billion-dollar company. And it, it created, and establish this like realignment or re-questioning of well, if we're doing this for the people, and the people are us as founders, you know, what how do we want to live? Our team the customers, the community, right? Like all those things like, okay, well, then we have to realign like, what is that? What's the, what's in their best interest? How do we maximize for that? And so for the team is everything's for the team. It's our number one value. It's our first rule that we live by Is we exist for the team. So that means that we have to think about, are they accomplishing their personal dreams, right? People work for most of their lives, how do we make sure that they're still able to do the other things that fulfill them? Not that work doesn't fulfill you. That's a big part of it, but there's other things. So we have two, two, uh, people on our team who are private pilots. They like learned how to be pilots, which is, you know, that's a really complicated accomplishment because you're really dependent on weather and it's, you know, it's expensive and you have to have flexibility of time because, oh, it's a beautiful day. Let's go. Uh, you know, I'm going to schedule it tomorrow and it's too windy. I can't go out, you know? And it, had they not worked for a while, but I don't know that they would have had another space where they were able to accomplish that over a couple of years, you know, yeah. because we were able to say like, you know, Ilya would say, Hey, it's a beautiful day tomorrow. I'm going to take it, or it's a beautiful day today. I'm going to take three hours and I'll pick it up later. And it's like, sure, go for it. You know, and that's success to me is like, if Yoba can enable us to have lives that are meaningful and fulfilled and what's ex- the entire reason for existence.
0: Well, you know, one, I appreciate that you brought up Cal. He's been a guest here multiple times. And uh, I also happen to be a really huge fan of his work. And uh, Deep Work definitely was one of those books that had a profound impact on me. I I wonder about two different things. One, uh, you know, we know where obviously this eight hour workday comes from, uh, you know, from the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. I wonder why you think we still have it. Um, Do you think we reach a point of diminishing returns? And why is it that you think uh, we have so many young people who have this narrative of, oh, I want to become the next Mark Zuckerberg or, yeah. you know, next Steve Jobs or whatever it is? Like, why is that? Uh, which I realize, you know, are three
1: questions in one, but I've been knowing to do that. To so I have very strong opinions on your first question. Uh, the, the reason that we continue to market this 40 hour work week is because we have not gotten smarter in measuring output of our teams. So we haven't gotten to a point where we don't teach managers to, to value their employees by what they contribute. We teach them to value their contribution by butt and seat. You know, how many hours are you logged in? How many hours are you in the physical office? And it's not an easy thing to solve, right? When we were, when we were putting widgets on a conveyor belt, we had a very clear start to finish, right? Put 3,000 pieces on the conveyor belt, that's your day, go home. And now we're looking at it and saying, write more, code more, design more, where's more, what's more, what's enough, I don't know what's enough, you know, and there's no end, right? I can keep designing something and iterating on a on a mock-up for a day, a week, a month, you know, how do, we, how do we put the parameters around it and measure and value our people in a way that does not require measuring how long they work? And I think... It, I, I don't know that I've solved it, honestly, but I, I think that what I'm trying to focus so much of my effort on is, how do I give myself the confidence that we're getting enough done and give the team the confidence that they're getting enough done so that the hours are irrelevant? It shouldn't matter, right? And, and then there's this confluence at some point between, I want us to get I want us to work in front of a screen for 32 hours, and I want us to do other things for the other however many hours of the week including weekends, mm-hmm. right? Like just if you, if you look at the whole person and it's like, okay, so now we have to converge somehow, how much is enough and how much we can accomplish in 32 hours. And I think that's tricky. We're knowledge workers, right? It's, it's such a, it's such a how, how do you value that? We just launched a new operating system internally that I'm hoping starts getting us there, which is kind of making commitments early on and all of us looking at it and saying, if we get this done, we're going to feel great. And then letting the team run. And if they get it done sooner, great, go home you know, and I don't know, it's new. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not advertising it yet, but the idea to start looking at it and saying, well, that's enough. (laughs) And enough is like this hard thing that I don't think we're all capable of, of really wrapping our brain around it. To your second question, the Zuckerberg thing, we've, the, the changes, I mean, the advancements, you said it earlier, right? We can do so much so quickly with so little. And so it's take, you don't have to be a Rockefeller to be successful. You don't, you know, you're looking at it and saying, oh my God, I can be a college dropout and have a really good idea. And it's so easy to build. And why can't I be that? And then you have the, the, the industry to support it only now we're starting to see more and more conversations. There's that New York Times piece, you know, about, Hey, uh, maybe we should be building sustainable businesses, businesses that provide value for more than just the shareholders. And, and, you know, you're seeing employees go work for these crazy companies, you know, the Facebooks, the, the Amazons and say, I'm giving up my soul for a couple years for a crazy salary. And then I can't wait to go back and work for somebody with a mission or, you know, B Corp's being more and more a thing. I mean, there's just, there's a lot changing, but I think ultimately we're looking into, I mean, I can't, I can't tell you how many friends that we have that have never, nowhere near the software business come and say, I got an idea. And I'm like, I don't want to hear about your idea i'm not the idea you know and the idea is not like it's not some passion it's oh my god i got an idea i'm gonna get rich and it's Uh like i don't have you know maybe i'm getting old sometimes i laugh that i'm turning into that like old grandmother back in my day but i I just i am like take your idea elsewhere i love you this is not good for me (laughs) like i don't want to hear it so i don't i mean i don't know what was the third question
0: you kind of answered it. Okay. Uh, you know, it's funny. The reason that they came up in my mind is, you know, you were talking about, you know, not necessarily wanting to have a, a three hundred million dollar business growing the way that you wanted to grow, and you know, it made me think about a, a conversation I had recently on the show with a guy named Will Storr who wrote a book called Selfie, uh, with the subtitle, you know, why we become so self-obsessed and what it's doing to us. And he said that, you know, we really one of the things that's, that's come about from sort of social media and the culture that we've built is that we have these really, uh unreasonable and almost just astronomical expectations of what success should look like in our lives. And we feel to me, you know, that that we're deficient if we're not, you know, best selling authors or Beyonce or Oprah. Uh and, and he said the impact of that is toxic uh on people's well-being. So that that's kind of what raised the question for me. So I wonder, you know, from your vantage point, what do you think?
1: It's a struggle even for me. You know, I don't want to come off and sounding like I've got it all figured out. There's times I see, you know, revenue numbers from a, another person and, and I'm like, how did they get there? What am I doing wrong? You know? And I have to re it's like so much work to just go back and say, you're doing what you want to be doing. Right. Like this is, yeah. this is why you're here. I, you know, I have two young daughters, right. I know, I know, I know what's in store for them when it comes to comparing themselves to others. Uh, it's. I, I do think. Like, I don't. I don't know. This necessarily all new. You know. I don't know. I, I think it's probably a human. A human condition that was just amplified so dramatically by our ability to see so much, and to yeah. just be, have so many inputs. I mean, we're seeing all into the belly of every every company, right? And then you have the stuff that that, that people care about, and that's where, for me personally, what's feeling really good is more more showcasing of these private companies who are just hustling. I think I, mm. I was reading a book recently and the name is totally escaping me, but they were talking about, they were looking at a comparison of CEOs and like who's most successful. And they said, once the CEO ended up on time on the cover of time, the business tanked. <laughs> and it was this idea that like some of the most successful CEOs just keep under the, the businesses, keep under the radar. They don't want the press. They don't want that stuff, but by keeping it under the radar, you don't hear the other story. You know, uh, and for so long, it's kind of like been my thing recently is I want to be a voice for the bootstrappers or the people who are like, I want to know that I can grow. Like, this feels weird. You know, I actually participate in, in organizations called EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, that brings together uh, entrepreneurs from different industries. And it is so radically different. That, like th- Those conversations that I have with folks who are in manufacturing, in e-commerce, like in all kinds of different businesses are so much more down to earth and rational, right? Supply demand you got to build value, you know, all these things that are like real that I Uh, am intentionally seeking out because I'm so exhausted of the startup crap, (laughs) you know? And there was actually, when I was looking at EO versus there's another organization that's focused on startups and their whole thing is like, Oh, you'll get in a room in New York city with all these great other. And I was like, I don't want to be in that room. Because it's just noisy and it's not valuable. And a lot of us, you know, we are trying to build businesses that somehow we're trying to pretend like the re- market conditions don't matter, that e- econ- economics don't matter, that like we've somehow changed the world. All we've changed is our capital efficiency, right? Like SaaS businesses, like the business that I run is very capital efficient, but they're even breaking that with like these massive sales teams and our sales and marketing, you know, we're still not making any money. We're burning all of it. And, you know, It's been the narrative for as long as I can remember. It's just starting to really shift. And that's encouraging to me, just like social media, you know, it's just like you're starting to see major brands show real bodies. You know, we're starting to, I think we're starting to get tired and we're starting to shift and ask as a, as a community that we want reality and we want alternatives. And I'm hopeful that it's going to, you know, it's going to get better.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I had this thought about Facebook in particular, where I said, "You know, Facebook touts this idea that their mission is to make the world more open and connected." And I said, "Yeah, but their business model is to sell your attention <laughs> to advertisers. Those are two wildly different things."
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, for my birthday last year, I, I finally deleted Facebook. Not just like on, un, un, unhooked it, but like deleted it. And wow. um, I don't say that because it's like some kind of thing. It was just such a stress inducing part of my life. And I was like, I can't do it anymore. Uh, you know, I, I still have Instagram though, unfortunately, and cannot pull the trigger on that one. And it's just, <laughs> what is wrong with me? I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, I think there's, there's benefits to that, right? I, I keep having this conversation with my mother-in-law who has connected with tons of high school friends, right? That in Facebook, and, Keeps in touch with her cousins and keeps in touch with all these people. And, you know, back to my whole old lady thing, I'm like, well, if those people cared, wouldn't they just call you? Mm-hmm. You know, like, wouldn't you know that somebody was born because you would be part of that? Like, do you need a circle that large of friends? And I think that was the biggest thing for me was just, I just don't need that circle that big. Like I don't need to connect with high school friends who and find out they had a baby. If we haven't talked in three years, you know, like it's fine. It's okay. Like I, I'm not, I don't hate them. I don't not need the, I just, those are not necessary relationships in my life. The ones that are necessary are the ones where I knew that they were expecting. I knew when the baby was born, I saw pictures, I came to visit them in the hospital, you know, whatever. And, you know, to some degree, shutting that down was so valuable for me because it forced even the family relationships, I was like, you guys can't invite me to like graduation events through a Facebook event. Like, call me. <laughs> like, you know, I you can't expect me to know that somebody was born. Like, we're going to require some kind of upkeep in this relationship, and if it's not there, that's okay, right? Like, I'm okay with that. Like, my third cousin, if they don't want to call me every time something big happens, in they're like, I'm okay with that. I'm not calling them either, right? So there's I guess it's reciprocal. But I, you know, I don't miss it per- personally at all.
0: So uh, you're a CEO, um, obviously you keep track of metrics, you know, revenue and a bunch of other things. Uh, I don't know if you've read it, but, uh, Clayton Christensen wrote a book a long time ago called, uh, how, you know, uh, how I think it's called, how are you going to measure your life? Uh, and I wonder what are the ways in which you measure your life and how those things changed, uh, with age and with time?
1: That's a, that's a, that's a good one, right? Uh, I think I'd like to know that I have contributed to other people's lives in a way that made their lives better. So I think what I, I think what I get most excited about is when Wildbit creates a space for somebody to explore an area that they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And even if that means outside of Wildbit, you know, I, I think with my kids, with myself, with, with Chris, with my family, it's like, the only thing I care about is can I, what can I do to support you or to help you reach something that feels otherwise unattainable? Because I feel very lucky that I'm able to be this, this in control of my destiny and this in control of what I want to do. And not everybody has the opportunity, um, the experience, the knowledge that that's even possible. So if I could do anything, it would be to make sure that I've, I've, Made that happen for somebody, you know, and and I've I've created that opportunity. My my biggest way to do that is through Wildbit, right? It's much easier organizationally to create a company where it enables and encourages that, and then I know that I've kind of hit on some of those. That that's probably mm-hmm. the most uh, right now, as I see it, the most important. And then the other one is I just I still, you know, I, you were saying that understanding that why are we all so selfish right and and we're all focused on ourselves I'm kind of in the space that you have to really understand yourself to help others and so I think I spent a lot of time trying to understand who I am and how I can be better and also accepting who I am in places where I can't be better you know what a, what a, what is the real me and the some of that's kind of hard and scary to do but really just spending some time on myself I I find the more I can get to that, the the closer I can get to understanding myself, the better I am as a person for everybody around me. So I think those two things, if I can keep working on myself and I think they probably come hand in hand. And the other one is just to find ways to help, help people accomplish their goals and their dreams.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think what, what is really interesting to me about your perspective um, that really is different from a, a typical CEO, like a public company. You know, typically one of the key metrics is shareholder value, but in your eyes, it seems like the quality of life of your employees uh, comes Ooh. before almost everything else, which I think is really remarkable and refreshing. I wonder what do you think it's going to take for people to make. A shift in, you know, some of these larger organizations to say, you know, what shareholder value isn't our number one priority. We're here to do something important.
1: I, I think the understanding what enough is is probably really critical. It really is this. I mean, a business by nature is like this insatiable beast. That's, it's created to always want to be more and grow, and it needs to be fed constantly. And it's until you can lasso that and control that beast and say like, all right, hold up a second. How how much do you need? How big do you need to get? is That opens up figuring out what to spend your time on and your space on alternatively. I think what's going to happen is that more and more of these, you know, as people like to refer, you know, these self-absorbed millennials and whoever, they're just only care about themselves and they want all these things. Well, they're going to push employers to be like, I guess, well, that's their, that's our workforce. So we're going to have to find ways to support them. And I don't think they're being that selfish. They're being rational and saying like, listen, I only have one life. Am I really going to give it to you to work 90 hours just because you had to work 90 hours? Like, come on now. And we have to start understanding more that the value isn't there. I don't know that, um, I don't, I'm a little, a little, Skeptical that it's going to happen all for good reasons and it's not going to be to somehow somehow it's going to get tied back to people like decimal time like can you measure the you know. The a dollar impact of four day work weeks. So I was like, no, I can't measure the dollar value, nor do I want to. Like, that's not the point. It's more like you're looking at it from the wrong standpoint, right? But I think it's going to turn into one of those things like somebody's going to do a study that says, oh, working less makes you twice as profitable. And people are going to be like, okay, we're going to work less. You know, it's not going to be working less makes your team happier and live longer lives and create better human beings for the world, right? But I don't think that's actually what's going to happen, but it's going to happen no matter what because. That's what the, that's what the workforce is demanding. And I think hopefully that, hopefully we keep pushing it.
0: Amazing. Uh, Well, this has been really, really uh, eye opening, insightful and thought provoking. I I love conversations like this because people like you make Mm -hmm. us think uh, and they make us, you know, think about what really matters and and what's important. Uh, So I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our our the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think having the ability to look at things for the first time, but without passing judgment. So really being able to just like some of the people that I reflect on that have been unmistakable to me, even just in my personal life have been those folks who, you know, can look at an issue and say, well, why does that exist that way? You know, and they're not just passing immediate judgment. It's bad or it's good. It's like, well, let's just, let's look at it from all sides. And I think those people, the ones who take the time to really think and really try to understand where things come from and why they're there are really the, the, the people that to me are unmistakable, you know, the ones and they're not necessarily celebrities. They're just people in my life who I've looked at and said, wow, I wish I could be that, that, that interesting or that different, that, you know, I don't know know if that was clear enough, but that's how I look at it.
0: Yeah. That was fantastic. Um, well, I think that makes it really fitting and, uh, (laughs) A poetic end to our conversation, where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, and everything that you're up to? Uh,
1: we're on wildbit.com. I'm Natalie Nagel on Twitter. Uh, open DMs are open and happy to chat with people.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more.